Dr. Matthew Castro here at Central Church in Kyreville, Tennessee. I'm the adult ministries pastor. You are listening to the Church and Politics Equip class. It meets on Wednesday night at 6.15 p.m. in room 235. You are listening to Lesson 7, Politics of the Kingdom. We're going to talk uh, tonight. This is kind of our, basically the way that this the rest of this class is working. We're going to finish tonight talking about kind of um, the covenant, the politics of the, of the different covenants, um, and we've talked about politics of creation. We've talked about politics of the fall of the new covenant, and we're going to talk about politics of the kingdom. Uh, tonight, we're going to talk a lot about the church, not as, and less about the government, but we will kind of tie that in a little bit. Uh, then we're going to kind of uh, we have a break next week, so don't come next week. But then the week after, on the 18th, we are going to talk about how to deal. We're going to kind of change gears a bit. And talk about how do we have fellowship with one another and unity in Christ, but have disagreements on politics. And so that's a pretty important uh, conversation. We may be a little behind on that conversation because that was really a, a major issue in the church around the 2016 election, uh, during COVID, uh, when Black Lives Matter was, was really kind of heating up in the summer uh, of 2020 after the uh, George Floyd had uh, died. And so there's just a lot going on. There was a lot of political op- op- opinions and positions that different people had in the church. And there were people that left churches over these type of things. And um, you may have been one of those people. I, I don't want to judge anyone, but um, there, were, there may have been people here at Central that may have gotten upset about different political positions that maybe the church, that they thought the church was taking or people in the church were taking. And and how, because there's always going to be a time, I, we have an election coming up in 2024, right? It's heating up. There's debates that are already happening. We have, uh, uh, we have an Iowa caucus that's going to come around the corner. Then we have Super Tuesday, right? And you're going to have your, if you're, if you're a Republican, you may have your primary candidate that you love, and and you may not like that someone else doesn't like your primary candidate. Um, and then once we get into the heat of the actual general election, then also that gets revved up a little bit more, depending on who the candidates are, right? So there, we're kind of are entering into that phase again where politics are going to be kind of, uh, we're going to turn up the heat on it, right? And it could cause some division in the church, right? And we don't want it to do that, but it has a tendency to do that. And so next, that and on the 18th, we're going to kind of talk about how do we navigate that? How do we navigate that? Because we, the thing is, we have to navigate it. We can't, the the expectation that everyone in the church agrees with you on everything is a bad expectation. Uh, Let me just tell you that. And especially a church as big as Central, the thought that everyone like this large would have the same view on everything is, is just not a good expectation. Um, And, and so how to, how to navigate that well is what we're going to talk about. And then we're going to get into some, some more um, uh, issues of like biblical manhood and womanhood, which is a big issue within the politics, especially identity politics, um, and like what is a man and what is a woman, that kind of those kind of things, which are big issues, especially in the schools and like how are they teaching children uh, about gender and sexuality and these type of things. And so we are going to spend the rest of our time talking about that. Any questions on any of that? Hopefully that will be enriching to you and helpful to you. Um, 
So we're going to talk about politics of the, of the kingdom of God. And uh, as you see um, in your notes here, um, you know, in the garden, you had a, a more direct, visible representation of God's rule. Uh, God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. He was clearly the, the Lord and the king. But then after the fall, it's not like God stepped off the throne and no longer was ruler over the earth, as if he was giving authority over to the serpent or over the devil to say, all right, I'm done with this world. You rule it. I'm, I'm done. I'm out. That's not what happened. However, what did happen was God's visible rule was less clear by, by choice. Um, the, the further we get through the scriptures and the more covenants that we get and the more promises that we get, God's visible rule is gradually becoming more visible and more clear. Especially you have Noah with, with, uh, with the rainbow and then with Abraham and the offspring um, and with circumcision and the promises he made to Abraham. And then you get to Israel, you have the ten plagues, you have the, the Red Sea, you have the promised land and the conquering of the promised land. So God's rule is far more clear than it was back in the day of, of said like Noah or Abraham. It's just progressively becoming more clear that God is the ruler of the world. He is the, he is the one that has authority and he then dictates or authorizes others to have authority in his world. Uh, when we get to, then we get to Jesus and clearly we have Jesus, the son of God saying with his mouth, that I am, I am the son of God and my father is, he is God. He is, he is the ruler. He is the creator and I am his son, right? Um, and you see, and, and as the disciples behold that this is, we've seen the glory of God, right? We've beheld it. We've touched it. We've seen it. We've heard it speak. Like God is real. God is ruler. God, look what he did with, he calmed the sea and he, he raised the dead and and so you see this clear, visible representation of God's rule over creation, over the world. Um, so the kingdom of Christ is made visible to the world through Jesus. But then when Jesus ascends into heaven, that visible rule is now shown through the church. Uh, the church, when we want to think about what is the kingdom of God, one of the best places to go to see the kingdom of God at work is actually in the church. So that's why we're going to talk a lot about the church, and we're going to primarily be in the book of Matthew. So we're going to look at Matthew 16, Matthew 18, and then Matthew 28. So Jesus authorizes in those three passages the church to be a political community alongside the state. Remember in Genesis 9, the, the government is then authorized to hold um, to criminal uh, to judge the unjust or to judge those who commit injustice, those who commit crimes, those who shed blood, those who are violent, those who do anything against another person, they are to be held accountable by humanity and the way that humanity has has chosen uh, to hold um, those who commit injustice is forming governments. Primarily. Now, there's been different forms of government since Genesis 9, right? You've got dictatorships, you have, um, you know, monarchs, you have, um, with, 
the United States, you have a representative republic. You have democracy, uh, like basically ruled by the people. Um, you have oligarchs. Um, you have, you know, like Great Britain is a little bit of a mixture. Like they're a, de a democracy who, who, who votes on representation in parliament, but then they also have a monarch, right, who the monarch doesn't do as much as they used to. Um, but different forms of government all over the world currently, different forms of government throughout history. Uh, America is not the first country to have democracy. The Roman Empire had, uh, they had representation, they had a republic before they had the emperor, right? Um, so you have different forms of government, and the Bible doesn't state one government is better than another. It gives basically humanity a sense of flexibility to determine what government or what organization they were going to establish to hold those who commit violent crimes and injustice, how you're going to hold them accountable. Because God has commanded in Genesis 9 that those who shed blood should be held accountable. They should be judged, right? They should be, and, and God is, de is deputizing humans to do that. He is not the one doing the judgment. He is not giving a sword to someone else. And so we see that, and that God has not, has not commanded that the government should stop doing that in the rest of the Old Testament or in the New Testament. We see Romans 13, that Christians ought to honor the government and pay their taxes and follow the law, right? There's no reason to be afraid of the government, right, if you follow the law, right? If you do what is good, you have no reason to fear the government, is what Paul is saying in Romans 13. So the purpose of this political community, the church, is to publicly represent King Jesus and display the justice and righteousness of God and proclaim that all creation belongs to King Jesus. So again, God is the ruler. He is the, he is the authority over creation. And the church, his role is to represent God and his kingdom and then to point people to the true king and to the true ruler. Now, we know from, uh, from Scripture, and I think John Andrew talked about this, Israel was supposed to be that, right? They were supposed to represent Yahweh and represent God and actually point people to God. If you remember, why did God do all the, the, the plagues? So that Egypt would know that Yahweh is God. That was the, that was the reason. That Israel would know he was God and that Egypt would know he is God. And also that all the nations would know. As when you get to Jericho and Rahab, Rahab had heard about God, a Yahweh, and was afraid, right? And they were shuddering because they had heard about what had happened in Egypt. The whole point is that people would know who the true king is, who God was. Um, and so the church's role is to point people to the true ruler, the true Lord, which is Christ. So, again, all the things that we do as a church, when we come here, we gather and worship, we gather around God's word, it is a political activity. Because what we're saying is, is that there is one Lord, there's one ruler, there's one king, and it is Christ. And we worship him. He is the ultimate authority over our lives and should be the ultimate authority over everyone's life, right? It's not a choice. I like to think that people choose to make him Lord. He is already the Lord. He's already created. Uh, and our, our role as the church is to point people to that, that authority and to that rule. 
So this assembly, the church, is manifested through the keys of the kingdom. And we're going to look at a few passages of Scripture in Matthew to show you uh, what these keys are and what, what, what he means by that. Um, so uh, are there any questions about any of that before we kind of dive into looking at politics of Jesus and the church? Are there any questions, any comments? We see like with, the, um, you know, when we take the Lord's Supper, it was mentioned like there was an accident on Sunday with the Lord's Supper. Uh, not like we spilt the juice or anything, but like there was, someone was supposed to get do the Lord's Supper and then they were up there. And so Matt, Pastor Matt had to do it. Like, so we do the Lord's Supper. I, I, I'm bringing that up because I, it was brought up earlier about the Lord's Supper. And, and uh, but uh, we take the Lord's Supper every other week, right at Central. Um that is a that is a that is a that is a community feast that we take, um, and what it, it represents visibly. So when people go, well, show me the kingdom of God, you go, okay, we'll come to church, come to the worship of the gathered believers, and then especially when we take the Lord's Supper, because why? Because we're visibly you can see the the church who have been saved and redeemed, and their hearts have been transformed by Jesus by Christ, and we acknowledge Him as Lord and King. He has transformed our heart and our, and our taking of the Lord's Supper affirms that we are people of Christ and we are part of the kingdom of God. Our allegiance isn't to some earthly king and our allegiance isn't to the devil. Our allegiance is to Christ. And so when we eat of the bread and we drink of the cup, we are affirming that faith and saying, yeah, my, my worship goes to him, Right. So when people go, where's the kingdom? They, that's a great visible uh, representation of our allegiance and our political activity. Taking the Lord's Supper is a political activity. Have you, any of y'all ever thought of it that way? Because what are you doing? You're saying, I don't worship the devil, and I don't worship anything else. I worship Jesus, and he has now sealed my, uh, my life and my identity by his blood which the communion is a representation, right? He seals that new covenant through his blood, and we eat and drink, affirming that we trust in Christ for our salvation, and we are, we are part of the same kingdom. We are all citizens of the same kingdom, and we actually worship the same king. That makes sense? Oh, it's not a baptism. It's more of a, like a public declaration. It is a, so those are two ordinances, Right. But baptism is a way to think of it. Baptism is, is an initiation into the political community, right? Right, you're being affirmed, right? So when, when someone is baptized, and why, we, why we're so excited and we, we clap our hands, because it's a visible representation of a new, new person into our kingdom. So there's a new citizen. Now, baptism doesn't save you, but there's a visible acknowledgement, now that person belongs to the same new kingdom as I do. And that's why we clap, because it's, it's a very much a welcoming, celebratory um, uh, experience, right? Now, just not only for the person doing it, but also for the person, people in the audience who are part of the same church, same kingdom, right? We're all citizens of the same kingdom, and now we've welcomed in a new citizen through baptism, does that, does that make sense? Are there any questions on that? Well, I would also like to say that it goes along with the uh, statement that Christ made 
If you deny me before man, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. Right. So it's a public proclamation. Right. This is who I am. Right. And it goes, and we're going to talk a lot about this, that why that passage is so clean, so important, because you, if someone says, like, it, 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 like we had, you know, we had Americans who, like, joined ISIS, right? right. And we actually had Americans that joined Al-Qaeda. And what it, the, the problem with that is they are traitors, right? They're actually joining a group that wants to kill Americans, and you go like, well, how can you claim yourself as an American citizen if you actually hate your country and want to actually join a group of people who are trying to attack it? And why it, it, why it stirs within us an anger is because it's like you can't claim to be a citizen of a, of a country and then want to deny it and actually fight against it. It's, I think that's why this passage is so clear. It's like how can you call yourself a believer while at the same time shutting everything that the Bible says and commands you to do, well, then if you deny me, if you deny me, I will deny you before my father, right? That's right. So again, it goes back to that political. Oh. Did I do that a few weeks ago, I think? Yeah. Um, so we're going to talk about, again, not only is, it, is the church is also used, the terminology that's, that's used in the Bible to describe the church is ambassadors. So the church is an embassy. An embassy and an ambassador is a political role. Wow. I can't, it's got to stop doing that. Because um, I almost think I'm like, you know, like I'm closing my eyes and holding them for a really long time. Um, so what is, a, what is an embassy? What is an embassy? When you think about what that is, anyone ever, I've never actually been inside of an embassy, even though I've been around the country. Um, anyone been to Washington, D.C. or New York where you see consulates or embassies? And what, what is outside? There's always a flag that represents the country. And you know that in the embassy, that is actually the, that's the grounds of the nation. So it, like that, when that, what happened in, in Libya, well, that was such a big deal because our nation was attacked. They go, well, how was it attacked? It was in Libya. Because the embassy, that is U.S. soil, right? So, there you go. Yeah. You know, playing with Moses was standing on, standing on that area in front of the burning bush. It's a sovereign ground. Yeah, right. So if you evade that ground, you're basically invading the country, right? Um, and so when we think about embassies being attached to the church, churches are the the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, but yet it is being visible or being represented on earth. And so central church, being a church, is an embassy of heaven in Cairoville, Tennessee. So it's like, well, let's take people to heaven. Or let's take people to where there's a visible representation of heaven. Well, you bring them to a church. Why? Because there's a worship of the true king, Jesus Christ, and the citizens are represented in that gathering, in that community. So the politics of Jesus. Um, Jesus is a, you know, Jesus is a significant character in the Bible most, in a lot of different ways. But one of the th- ways that Jesus is such a significant character in the Bible because he fulfills all the things of the Old Testament. Um, Jesus is the, is the new Adam. Uh, Jesus is the offspring of Abraham. Jesus is the true Israel. 
Jesus is the son of David. So Jesus is the, is the ruler over the new covenant people. God, Christ fulfills those promises made in the Old Testament. Um, we think about how, how can you become an offspring of Abraham? Is it because you're Jewish? How do you become an offspring of Abraham? That, that cuts out women. <laughs> how do you become an offspring of Abraham? Is it, that's it. Faith in Christ. Christ fulfills the covenant of Abraham. Uh, Jesus is the king. He is the, he is the heir, of da- heir of David, and he rules over the people of God. And the, hence why the new covenant was sealed in Christ. So Christ reveals the, rule, the, the authority of Christ of, of God and, the, and the, um, the rule of God in a very, very visible way manifested that rule. Um, it was known through Jesus. Jesus is the perfect king who manifests God's rule in the world. Uh, he declares that the nations belong to him. Not just the nation of Israel, but all the nations of the world belong to him. He is the ruler and authority over all the nations. That's why in Philippians 2, he's been given a name above all names. All, he is above all authority and all rule. He's been given, um, he is now the head of the church, which is his body. You see at the end of Ephesians chapter 1. Um, and how do you become a part of that, of his kingdom and a part of his rule is through his, his atonement power and how he forgives your sins. He offers a new covenant in his blood. And so if you trust in Christ, you then receive forgiveness of your sins. You also are ushered into the new kingdom. You're now citizens of his kingdom, and he is your king. He is your Lord. And you, get, you receive his protection. You received his inheritance and his gifts. And you're installed as a citizen of his kingdom. Regardless if you're Jew or Gentile or what nation you belong to or what tongue you speak or what race you are or what gender you are, or how much money you have in the bank, either you're a slave or if you're free, it doesn't really matter. You belong, if, you, if you put your faith in Christ, you've been forgiven and you belong to his kingdom forever, for eternity. That's really good news. Um. And we'll see more and more, again, once we get to, especially when we get to the new, the new heavens and new earth, right? When we get to the end of days, Christ's rule will be far more visible, far more visible. Um, and that is also good news. Um, so Jesus, again, is the new Adam. He in, initiates this new covenant. His people are made up of nations and tongues. All the nations belong to him. Um, Israel was tasked to be this um, representation to the world of God's rule, uh, that they acknowledge God's rightful authority over all creation, and that the nations around Israel would come to know Yahweh as the Lord over all. But what do we know from the Bible? They failed. The Israel tended to act more like the other nations then they were a representation or a witness of Yahweh and his rule. Um, And so they failed at that representation. Jesus was the true and better Israel who pointed people to God. And then now he is ushering and he's using now the church to be that representation 
to the world. Um, so Jesus is significant because not only is he God, but he is also man. So God has chosen to rule on earth through Christ, but also it's not just God's not some kind of like phantom or an angel. God, is, Christ becomes human flesh. So we have a king and a Lord who is God and fully divine in every way, but also took on flesh. He lived, he suffered, and he died in our place. That's our king. That's our Lord. That's who rules. Is a God who came in human flesh, dwelt among us, and then died for us to usher us into his kingdom. Um, are any, any questions on Jesus before we move to the church? Yeah. yeah. One question. It kind of, when we talked about last week, going into this week, when they were following that thread, over, over kind of mentioned that, like, the Jews, God said, like, you can't hear what I'm saying. He's right, like, Deuteronomy. Mm-hmm. And then you have Jesus and the disciples saying the same thing. So, like, just thinking about that and listening to this, is it, I would assume that the gospel's available to anybody, but you, you see these people in the Bible that are like listening. And he's like, you can't understand what I'm saying. Yeah, your heart's hardened. Is that like, does that end? I mean, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a great question. Um, obviously, to have faith, you the Spirit must change your heart, right? How do you come from a dead person who doesn't listen to someone who is made alive and does listen? It's all by the Spirit. The Spirit opens your ears, it opens your eyes, it opens your heart to hear. So it gets to that point, like, when does someone become a Christian? Well, the, the conversion experience is, is a part of a regeneration. You go from someone who's dead spiritually to being alive spiritually. Well, how does someone become dead to alive? Spiritually, what? It's all about the Spirit. So there's, there is a complete dependence on the Spirit's work in someone's heart. And then someone responds to the truth of the gospel as it is spoken. But that heart has to be changed by the Spirit to hear and to listen. I mean, when did you become a believer, Josh? Uh, I was like four. You were, like, you were young. You were young. Anyone else become a believer when they were adult? I was in high school. You were in high school. How old were you, Rebecca? 30. 30. What changed? What changed? Because it, you were 25, 26? I mean, I grew up in the church, so I grew up around it, but I just kind of did what my parents told me to do. And it was really just getting back into church and letting, I mean, the Spirit work yeah. a miracle in me. Yeah. So. yeah. It's ex- I mean, it's almost like it's hard to really like, tangibly say, well, this is the process. It's like the Spirit just changes a heart, and then progressively, it, it, it the heart is open to, I am a sinner and I need Jesus. <laughs> like what ha- what happened with you, Jordan? Um, with me, um, it it was like I so I was going to church with a friend of mine. My parents never went growing up, and um, so I went with him. And then a tragic incident happened in my family with a family member that almost lost her life. And I was really young. I was. Um, sophomore in high school and I went to the ICU and saw her and it just like was one of those moments where I just started piecing together some of the things I was hearing in church and stuff and um, so I just started asking a bunch of questions and I just felt convicted and 
from there. Yeah. Again, it's all spirit-driven. All spirit-driven. Even to a point of why, even as a Christian, why continue to come to church and continue to study the scriptures? It's still spirit-driven, 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 spirit-driven. We're all completely dependent in our salvation, in our salvation, but also in our sanctification and our growth in the Spirit's work in our hearts and lives. Um, and which is a significant part of being a part of the citizen of citizenship of heaven is that when you are forgiven by King Jesus who died for us and then rules over us and ushers us into his kingdom, he gives us the Holy Spirit to keep us in the kingdom. So like we're, transfer, we're, trans, we're transferred from the, the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, and we don't want to go back to the darkness because the Spirit has been given to us Unlike Israel, right? There's a their inability to follow the law is because their hearts were had not been changed. Unlike it is today, with the Spirit. Yeah, Paul said. Paul said there was a day coming, and that the gospel going to the Gentiles was in part to make the Jews jealous. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a day coming when, for some from ethnic Israel, he was going to um, through the Spirit soften their hearts. But it's just in his. Good timing. Exactly. Um, like I, the way that's helpful for me to think about it is, and this is for anybody, is it's like the Apostle Paul. Like he was familiar with the Old Testament, which Paul later says contains the message of salvation. Um, he, he's familiar, an expert in the Old Testament, but he didn't see it until the resurrected Jesus showed up on the road to Damascus. That's like the same thing for every individual person. It's in the worst good timing to just show up in person What makes Jesus the rightful king and the rightful king over the new covenant especially is that he is God. So he is the creator the uh, image of the invisible God, all things were created through him, right? He was God, he was creator, he was Lord in the beginning. But then he became man and was the firstborn amongst the dead. Uh, I'm sorry, the firstborn from the dead, Colossians 1.16, the resurrection, right? Because of his death and resurrection, now we have been ushered into that kingdom, so Jesus is so significant to our political identity. And I think that's, you know, again, if, if I, could, I know in some ways this, this class has probably been different than you thought it was going to be, but we really wanted to help you understand that your primary political identity is that you belong to him, not to whatever party you associate with or what country you have a passport for. That is not your actual primary political identity. You may think that it is, but it isn't. Your primary identity if a, as a Christian, if you are a Christian, is that this is the true king and ruler and the true authority over your life. That doesn't mean don't vote. <laughs> and that doesn't mean don't be involved in politics. But even if you vote, and even if you're involved in politics, this doesn't change. He's your true Lord. So he dictates how you live and how you do politics in the world. 
It goes back to Jesus. And you're a part of the church, which is the people of his kingdom. And that is actually, that is your primary political community. So if you're involved in the Republican Party in the county, in Shelby County, or you're involved in, uh, you're a delegate to the state, you know, Republican convention or, or Democratic convention, you may be a delegate to that, but your primary political community is the church. Not that. Does that make sense? Um, so it's interesting that it, even though Jesus is the king, he has delegated authority to the church. And so we're going to talk a lot about that. He's given the state, the government, that he, God has given that institution authority. We saw that in Genesis chapter 9, right? After the flood, after Noah and the rainbow, uh, if a human blood is shed, there is, judgment has to happen. And government is given the sword, we see in Romans 19, to do that. It's a proper God-given authority. Uh, but the church, which has been given authority by Jesus, does not have the sword. So uh, we want to talk about wh- why that's important um, as we go forward. So one of the ways that we, as part of, of Jesus' kingdom, of Christ's kingdom, we are to represent Christ, cultivate that kingdom, and protect that kingdom. So when we talk about cultivating it, you, evangelism is how you cultivate it. Um, you, the church has not been given the authority to raise an army and say, convert and be baptized or you will die. We have not been given the authority to do that. That is an improper way for the kingdom of Jesus to be cultivated. Now, however... It doesn't mean that it hasn't been tried in the past. Um, Charlemagne, king of the Franks, did this. Other kings in Europe during the medieval times did this. And the Crusades were another example of this. It's when the church, who was also connected to the state, improperly looked to cultivate God's kingdom through force. Got nowhere in Scripture... In the New Testament, was the church given that authority? So it's a misuse of authority, is what it was. You could almost argue that there wasn't the church trying to like, spread the gospel or the church. It was really just people trying to grasp their power. Well, what, and I think what, ended up, what happened was is you had these kind of the circles of like the church and then the state as one entity, and then they went to reclaim the Holy Land, right? And so... The church and the state, instead of them being distinguished with their different roles given by God, were this, you know, you could say that the state needed to protect European land from the invasion of Islamic armies. That's a legitimate thing to do, right? If the Islamic empires or the caliphates wanted to destroy or, 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 or invade and sack you know, uh, Spain and Gaul and eastern parts of Europe and Rome and other parts, and Constantinople and all these different cities. It's proper for the state to protect, I don't know, citizens from death. That's a proper thing to do. Like, that's not improper. That's, you're supposed to do that. If, 
One group wants to just kill you because they want your land and your money. Well, the government's supposed to protect you from that. But when the church unites with the state and they actually share the sword or they share the responsibility of, of converting people to the, to the kingdom, that's when it becomes a problem. That's when it becomes a problem. And you get in this phenomena and you get into this unifying church and state and it's not, it's not the New Testament set up or structure. Um, does that all make sense? We all good? Any questions on that? I'm, I feel like I'm, I don't want to go down any rabbit holes, but if there's any questions on that, we can, we can talk. But one of the things, especially in America, where there is a more of a separation, especially of church and state, right? Where, where I think we get, sometimes we get conflicted is we almost want the, sometimes we want the state to do our job for us. But again, the state cannot, like, for example, you know, if we, if there are a group of people that, um, the, the, the state's not supposed to state what is proper doctrine and, and improper doctrine. Or are they supposed to state what's a good pastor or a bad pastor? The church does not, I mean, the state has no responsibility over those, over those things. Now, the church has that authority. Right? We have the authority to excommunicate a member of the church if they're sleeping around with a bunch of people around town. Right, The church has that. Now, the government shouldn't go to their house and arrest them and put them in jail. Does that make sense? Um, so, the church, let's look at, um, so the church is a heavenly citizenship. There is two kingdoms of the world. Uh, Augustine talks about this, the city of God and the city of man or the kingdom of earth and the kingdom of heaven. And the state is given by God the authority to judge injustice in the kingdom of earth because humanity is sinful, right? What, is, what, did, what did God say about the world after the flood? The world was still sinful. It, it didn't cleanse the world of sin. Uh, it didn't rid the world of sin. Noah and his family, when they got in the ark, were sinful, when they exited the ark, they were sinful. And when they started to cultivate, they were still sinful. Like sin wasn't, wasn't rid of. It wasn't the purpose of the flood. Um, and so sin was in the world. Humanity was sinful. And so there was an establishment of the government to protect people from each other. From each other. And so that's, you know, we, you have that kingdom of the earth and you have an authority that's been given by God. But that authority is temporary. Uh, that in heaven there will be no uh, Congress and Senate. There will be no President of the United States. There will be no Vice President. There will no, be no Supreme Court. There will be no Mayor's office, most likely. There will be no Police Department. Uh, that authority is temporary. You know, <laughs> the thought of be living in a world with no government seems a bit unusual. But that will be what heaven's like. Why? Because we won't need it. Why won't we need it? There's no sin. <laughs> you don't have any injustice having to be accounted for. So there's no government. No taxes. Yeah, no taxes. What would be the purpose for it? Revelations where it talks Thanks will be in charge. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. That. Well, the, it really we're in this. We're in a we're in a role now as as people of Christ's kingdom. We are priests, no different than Adam was in the garden. We are no different than Adam in the garden is. Um, so that is our role in the new heavens and new earth too. Um, which inter- brings in a lot of speculation of what that looks like, right? Um, but I think one of the things that we do know, through just through Scripture, is there's no government that has to hold us accountable for misdeeds, because that is the only pur- that, that is the that is the foundational purpose of government is to judge misdeeds. Well, in a world with no sin, no need for an institution to hold a sword and hold any type of judgment. Isn't that amazing? Um, so, you know, uh, so, the, so the, you have these two kingdoms. Now, the kingdom of heaven is expanding. What did, what did Jesus say in the, in the Lord's Prayer? I think Pastor Matt preached on this recently. Oh, uh, uh, our Father, our heart in, art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it already is in heaven. What is Jesus telling them to pray? That currently on earth, not everything is, is like it is in heaven. Pray that that would come, right? That, and there's a progression of God's kingdom in heaven coming into the earth. Now, Jesus coming into the earth was like the the initiation of that kingdom, but then his salvation and the, and the start of the church just expands that reality. Um, and so the, the, visible, the visibility of God's rule is expanding. Uh, the beloved son of God represents the kingdom of heaven on earth. Um, his community are called fishers of men, and we go to proclaim the message of our kingdom to the world. That we know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. That the world doesn't know the things that we're talking about. Like they have no concept of a new age where there'll be no government. They don't understand this. When you talk about unity and peace amongst nations, they have no concept of salvation that is in Christ, and the byproduct of that salvation is Christ is a a new man, right? A new race. That is being trans- that's being made through the Spirit of God. They have no concept of that. They think it's going to come into the United Nations, right? The United Nations were started in the 40s. More war happened in the 20th century than it did in the 19th century. So the United Nations had, well, good intentions, the League of Nations by Woodrow Wilson, it has not stopped war. It, there's not, it hasn't created peace amongst nations. The only thing that will ultimately bring peace among nations is Christ. And hence why we go into the gospel to all nations is because that will bring people together and unified is through Christ. Because we see in Revelation what the new age will look like. All nations, tongues, and races will worship the same king. Um, and so we see that, that new age coming. So we know the mysteries that is, that is to come. Uh, and we see that in the kingdom, in, the new, this, in this political community, you have people of different, again, that are foreign-born. It's not just for Israel. And Jesus says that. If you open your Bibles to Matthew 8, 
Matthew 8. I think I have it in your notes too, don't I? Yep. Matthew 8, 10 through 12. Can somebody read that for us? When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline that table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So you see Jesus saying, this is, a, this is the story of the centurion. And Jesus responds about, just recognizes his faith. This is a man who's not, is not from Israel. He's is, he's a Gentile. Then Jesus makes his comment. He says that um, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So again, the kingdom of heaven is made up of not just not of Jews only, but of all nations coming into this political community who recognize one authority, which is Jesus. And the grounds and the of of that of that identity is through Christ's forgiveness and through his his blood. He initiates this. Um, I want to get to so one of the through all that being true and all that being established, what authority does the church have? What does authority does the church have? So if you would turn over to Matthew chapter 16, I want to look at this passage and see if we can look at. A few other passages too. Matthew 16. Uh, la, 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 la. Maybe just read. So you have, the, you've, you've heard this passage before, right? Uh, Jesus uh, asked the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And the answers they gave. And then he asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And then Peter says, you are Christ, the Son of the living God. Um, and Jesus uh, responds to his answer. It's a flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And then in verse 18, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. First time Jesus mentions the word church, ecclesia, my assembly, my political assembly. This is the people that will be a part of this assembly are people who make this confession that Jesus is Christ, the son of the living God. Uh, you don't become a part of this community by being born into it. You are brought into it by faith, by trust in Christ. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And the way that this has been translated and how I've also translated it is he's speaking about the church. He's giving the church authority, and that authority is the keys of the kingdom. Now, there's been discussion about what does it mean, what, what does keys mean? Does it mean to proclaim the gospel? Uh, I think it means more than just that. Uh, what Jesus is saying is he's giving the church, the political this, this political community, this political assembly, that recognizes that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. He is the ruler. He is the king. He's giving them the authority over doctrinal matters. So when you see in Acts 15 and the church gathers together and then they make the, they make the decision that 
Gentiles did not have to be circumcised to be in the kingdom. That was them living, living out using the keys. They made a decision. And that decision was bound on earth and it was bound in heaven. Other matters in which they uh, adopting a statement of faith um, is, and also in the, in the, in the issues of, of accepting or affirming members into the, into the body or expelling members of the body, as you see in, Acts 8, I mean in, in, in Matthew 18, is the church that Christ has given authority to, he's given the keys, and what they bound or what they loose is accepted in heaven. So that's why, you know, like membership is important in the church, and also who you accept into membership is important. It's not just a casual thing you do, you know, all they like, that's a nice couple, we should let them in. You know, they have beautiful children, we should let them into the church as well. The question is, do they affirm that Christ is, that Jesus is the, is the Christ, the Son of the living God? If they don't, then they should not be a member of the church. They shouldn't be the member of the church. Because again, the church had the authority to recognize who Christians are, affirm them, bring, and then ha- they're in the part of the church, you facilitate the Lord's Supper to them, and they're also a part of this church governing of, of holding the keys and having authority. Does that make sense? So being a part of the church isn't simply coming to a nice worship service once every Sunday and coming to a meal on Wednesday night and having a cookie. Like, it's far more than that. Like, it's significant. You are given, you are a part. It is good, but this is even better because you are a part of a community, a political community that recognizes Jesus as Lord and you have authority as a body. You have, a, you have authority that Christ has given you. So when we have, like, Central has a statement of faith. that God, Christ has given Central the authority to state this is what we believe. Now, properly, you ought to, you, you ought to create your statement of faith according to Scripture. Because the church is a creature of the word. But it's given that authority to do that. You have the authority as the church body to recognize elders, to recognize deacons, to send out missionaries, right? John Andrew, you were a missionary of Central. Central has the authority by Christ to send you out. It doesn't have to do what? It doesn't have to go tell the Pope, hey, Pope, do you mind if we send John Andrew to Ecuador? That's no. The central has the keys given by Christ to make that decision. Antioch in Acts 13 sent out Paul and Barnabas. They didn't have to go call Peter, James, and John and ask them if they can do it. No, they have the keys given by Christ to set apart Paul and Barnabas for the sake of missions. So the church does have authority. The state is given the sword. The church is given the keys. So the state has no business determining if John Andrew should be a missionary or not. At one time it did, and that was an unfortunate time. Go ahead. Question. Um, in this particular passage, Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you find on earth 
Like, where's the transition from just Peter to all the whole church has that? Well, the verse prior to that, he, he ushers in the term church, right? So he kind of broadens it. He's already, by going from Peter and then broadening it to speaking about, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I will give you, the church, the kingdom, the keys of the kingdom. Now, there were probably people that will argue, well, no, that was Peter that he was given these keys to. So I'll Catholics have built off that doctrine of Peter is the rock. Peter is the authority. The Pope uh, is uh, the Pope's legitimacy and authority comes from that. They are and the, the line of Peter. I don't believe that's the proper way to read that, especially if you go into Matthew 18, because it speaks even more about not Peter, but speaks about a, pro- a process of how the church is to deal with sin and it's missed. That it's supposed to be handled in a structural way. And if this person does not repent to the church, they are to be removed by the church. And the issue is, well, who does the removing? I would argue that the removing is done by the congregation of the church. Especially since Paul, when he writes in 1 Corinthians about the individual in the midst who was sleeping with his father's wife. He's writing to the church to deal with this issue. Um, And so we see that it's not just an elder or a pastor that has authority in the church, but the congregation has authority in the church. Any any questions on that? Um, I don't know if we have time. Authority directed within the church. How is that authority directed so that it's yeah. fair, you yep. say, or, or Yeah, and I think that, you know, different churches have different polities on how they structure the church. And, you know, Baptist churches are more congregational. Or anyone, anyone grew up in Southern Baptist? In Southern Baptist churches, every member is voted on by the church, right? So if Bill and Connie wanted to be members of First Baptist of Tallahassee, right, the way to become that is you declare that you'd like to be a member of the church and then they vote upon you. It's like a, it's completely openly congregational. Like every matter is voted upon by the church. A budget's voted on by the church. New pastors are voted on by the church and all these different things. Other churches, they, like Presbyterian especially, the elders and presbyters, they make the decisions about the church. And now there are other matters by which maybe the congregation does have some authority in. Maybe it's church discipline. Maybe it's a budget. Uh, maybe it's other matters of the church that the church's voice is brought in. I think that there is needs to be a balance between where you have officers of the church who, who do lead the church. But I do believe that the whole congregation are, are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. They're priests within the kingdom and should be involved in the binding and loosing and the use of the keys. But again, I grew up, I'm Baptist, so my congregationalism will come out a little on that one. So, uh, but how you, there is a flexibility in that in scripture, you know, you know, there's a flexibility on who, who has the keys. I believe that, that the, the keys is, uh, is that the church has the keys and they make decisions as a body on how to, um, how to declare what their statement of faith is, who their officers are, how they bring in new members and how they hold members accountable, uh, to God's word. Another way that another another we have ten more minutes. Another authority by which Jesus has given the church 
is in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. If you want to look there real quick. Uh, Matthew 18, just really quickly, it ends, that section ends the same way. It ends, um, if, two, if, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And in verse uh, 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. It's the same passage. Jesus repeats himself in chapter 18. Again, the church has authority to hold its members accountable to their sin. Right? The government can't do that. The government can't, if you were to, again, if you, you know, go around town, you know, having affairs and committing adultery, the government shouldn't arrest you and put you in jail. Now, if you're a member of Central Church and you're doing this, the church does have the authority to hold you accountable and say, you need to repent of your sin. And if they refuse to repent, after a brother meets with them or a sister meets with them and a group meets with them and then they bring them before the church and they refuse to repent, they refuse to recognize that they're a sinner and need to live a whole life, what happens? They're excommunicated. And it's proper for the church to do that. Why? Because Jesus has given it the authority to do that. It's not like the church has made that up. Hey, we don't like you anymore and we would like for you to leave. That's not what Jesus has given the church to do. They're given the authority to hold people who claim Jesus as king, who then must live according to his rule. Not to say that we're going to live perfectly, but if you're sitting and you're doing it openly and you don't care, that's an issue. That's an issue. The church has the authority to do that. Um, Matthew 28. Um, they are authorized by Jesus. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go now and make disciples of all nations, right? Jesus starts the Great Commission saying, I have authority. Now go in my name and under my authority and under my protection. Go and then make disciples. I'm giving you the authority to make disciples in my name. And I'm also giving you the authority to baptize in my name. And to do what? Teach them all that I have commanded you. I'm giving you that authority to do that. The church has been given authority. He hasn't given the government that authority. Right? This, it doesn't mean that the state shouldn't uh, provide um, freedom of religion. That is a good thing. The proper thing. The thing that we should... Um, demand from governments that they give us freedom of religion, but we should not expect the government to be proclamating the gospel and expanding the church. It has not been given that authority, but the church has been given that authority, right? The church has been given the authority to send out missionaries to bring the gospel to areas of the world that haven't heard the gospel. We shouldn't expect the state to do that, nor should we expect the state to sponsor or give money to it either. We shouldn't expect it. It doesn't mean that they, they could do it, but we shouldn't expect it. In some ways, we shouldn't even want it. We shouldn't even want it. Um, does that make sense? All this is making sense. So the church is an embassy. It represents Christ's authority on earth. Um, let, me, let me finish with this real quickly because we've got like four more, four, five more minutes. Um, the importance of religious tolerance. Um, 
the, the government, we shouldn't expect it to pros- prosecute false religion, right? If someone in our town wants to create a Jedi faith and start meeting on Sunday and worshiping Yoda, we shouldn't expect the government to shut them down, right? You may say, well, that's a pretty stupid thing to worship. And you should maybe interact with them and say, Yoda's not a god. He's a fictional character. There's no such thing as the force in Star Wars. It's a cool story that I enjoy, but it's not real. But Jesus is real. You should have that conversation with them, but you shouldn't expect the government to shut them down, right? Um, and even so, there's, there's been Supreme Court decisions in the past where people's religion, uh, they, they're encouraged to smoke things in their worship. And what has the state done? It's allowed them to smoke that certain stuff, right? You may say, well, the church should, the government should stop them from doing that. All right, you may have that opinion. And you may be able to tell them, hey, you smoking that stuff, giving you this kind of like mystical experience, that's not real. That's not real. Why don't you worship the one true God? You don't have to smoke stuff to worship him, right? You should have that conversation with them. But you shouldn't expect the government to do it for you, right? So we shouldn't expect the government to do that. That's not its role. God has not given it that authority. God's not saying, why aren't you shutting them down? Why are you shutting down the Yoda worshipers? Like, I don't understand. God's not doing that because he hasn't given the government authority to do that. But he has given you the authority to go make disciples amongst those people, right? Uh, It's the other way around, wasn't it? Yes. Do you remember? Maybe I got it wrong. Well, no. so, so, is the Pyota? Pio- yeah. 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 No, the the, the, the um, Supreme Court held that the government um, can ban, you know, peyote smoking, um, but it, that could have been um, essentially abrogated by the um, Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Gotcha. So basically, they legislated. After the Supreme Court says the government can do this if they want to, the government turned around and passed a law. Passed a law, did. Yeah. Um, is that similar to like underage drinking of alcohol and like the Catholic version of the communion? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty sure they draw the line at like human sacrifice though. Yes. Again, (laughs) that's where the government should step in. Why? Because God has done what? He has authorized that people's blood should not be shed. So when there's a religion out there in America, like, killing people for the sake of their worship, uh... Well, and to be more, more historically accurate, there have been multiple cults in America shut down for sexual relations with minors. Right! And multiple sexual partners or marital partners, as they might refer to them. Right. Uh, and that... That's what all I was going to mention before real quick was just on this topic, just acknowledging that it does sometimes make it hard as Christians for us to look at which things like are on the side of, yes, the government should enforce this versus, well, no, this is more specific to our religion, you know, versus, like, there are some things the Bible is very clear, like, you know, like you said, the government should punish stealing and murder, but, right. like, you know, is it the government's responsibility to punish, you know, I don't know, just things things that are specific to our, like even some people argue the issue of uh, same-sex marriage. They're like, well, marriage is an institute of God, so whatever the government's doing is really nothing to do with the church. It's just, that's just what they're doing. 
our belief in, you know, one man, one woman is a religious thing, so we really shouldn't care what the government does about it. And I'm not saying that's my opinion, I'm saying that's an argument I've heard from Christians who say, well, we, we believe it's wrong, but we also believe it's it's a church thing, it's a state thing, like they're not related, mm. even though, you know, so it can be hard to, to it decide. It can be. And then the one other thing that that, um, that I've just and really the problem with the the gay marriage thing is where 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 the government put themselves in it is when they're giving tax benefits right. to people who get married. Right. So when you create that precedent, you're like, well, now you're leaving a group out. Right. So you wonder if they would have even fought for gay marriage if the state never even gave that initiative in the first place. But that's yeah, beside they, the point. They marriage that's beside the point. Purely right. Religious. And I know we got to go, so I'll say this super quick. The one thing I haven't. I don't feel like I've heard you say it very strongly throughout this lesson is just as there are things that God has not given the state authority to do and the responsibility to do, there are things that we have been as the church given the responsibility to do that are often being shoved onto the state, like mm-hmm. Christians are supposed to take care of the orphans and widows. Mm-hmm. And yet yep. the primary provider for the poor in our country is the government because Christians are not stepping up and tithing enough and giving enough and serving enough. And I'm not pointing fingers. I'm just telling it like it is. Uh, if you want to read a good book, David Platt's Radical talks a lot about there's a lot of responsibilities God's given the church to take care of you know, societal and community issues. And Christians are shoving it onto the government, saying, "Well, we don't want to fulfill that God-given responsibility. We want the government to do it for us." Right, and that creates an issue too. So. It does, yeah. And I, one thing I was gonna, if I was gonna have time, I was gonna get to this point of, at the end, at the page four of your notes, the embassy on the international map, and then we have to, we're like out of time. But um, one of the things I was gonna say is the church's twofold jurisdiction. It's to its members. The members of the community, believers, like you have a jurisdiction, we have a jurisdiction as a church to those in our community, in our political community, in our church, those who are citizens of heaven. Uh, we need to, uh, we, have a, we have to govern together, we, have, we worship together, we take the Lord's Supper together, uh, we pro- proclamate the gospel together, right? Well, also, there is a jurisdiction to the nations, which is the importance of the gospel. We're going to the nations. The state is not given the authority by God to make disciples, but the church is. And so how is the world going to believe and be a part of the church and be a part of the kingdom unless the church goes and makes disciples and baptizes But that includes not just proclamation. I mean, we were, me and Johnny Drew and Derek were talking about this today. That includes caring for the widows and orphans. That's a part of our role. I mean, we're told to love our neighbors. That is not a, that's not a contrary commission that's disconnected from the Great Commission. We are to love the least of these. That's another way we visibly represent the kingdom and the earth and represent Jesus who laid his life down for the sake of sinners and he came to, who, to relieve the captives free, to give sight to the blind. To, to, that's what he came to do. And we as deputies of Christ, of the king, ambassadors of the king, should continue that work. That's, um, so yeah, we, that's one of the problems that the church has today is the government has taken over a lot of our responsibilities, unfortunately. 
So we got to get back in that game um, as a part of the kingdom, as a part of the political community. So any questions on anything that you would like to ask? Pray for your government. Pray that the that they would uh, recognize that who the true authority is, but also that they would provide religious tolerance. One of the things that is uh, super helpful if you look at church history and missions is when governments are friendly to missionaries in the church, the gospel goes forth. When it doesn't, it makes making the gospel proclamated in that area harder. The reason why a lot of people in the Middle East are not Christians is because the government doesn't allow missionaries to come there and doesn't allow churches to be built. And so pray that governments in the Middle East and in Asia and other parts of the world would look favorably on the church and favorably on missionaries so that the gospel can go forth. Right? So pray for good governments around the world, not just in our, in our country, but also in the rest of the world. Any questions or comments before we pray? Okie dokie. Let me pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for our time and praise you, Lord, for that you have brought us into your kingdom. You have transferred us from the uh, kingdom of darkness into your kingdom, uh, the kingdom of life, the kingdom of your beloved son, uh, the one who died and saved us, Lord, saved us by his blood and initiated that covenant. And uh, we look forward to drinking it with him anew um, in his kingdom uh, before him, Lord. And we thank you that you give us the Lord's Supper that we get to celebrate uh, regularly, Lord, just um, reminding us of who our true king is, what he did for us, that we are a part of the same kingdom, that we share the same king, um, that we are part of the citizenship of heaven, um, that we are not just uh, presently forgiven, that we are part of a new age. We are the people of a future age. Um, and, uh, Lord, if people want to go, I wonder what the future world will look like uh, when people say, what is it going to look like in the new heavens and earth? They can come to the church and see uh, what the people of God are doing, um, worshiping Jesus as King and Lord and living their lives according to his word. And we pray, Lord, that you would send us out to proclaim that message to those who do not believe that Jesus is Lord and that you would save and redeem and that you would bring more people into our midst that claim that Jesus is the son of the living God and Lord, and that they would join and share the same identity and be shaped. Their behaviors will be shaped by the spirit and by his word. And we pray as a church, um, as a local church here in Kyreville and the Memphis area, Lord, that we would be those who uh, affirm Christ Jesus as Lord, that we would, um, uh, we would teach the word of God, that we would make disciples, we would baptize, Lord, Lord, that we would affirm uh, people and bring them into our midst and baptize them and, and affirm them as members of the body um, and, 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 and walk alongside them and, and disciple and shepherd and to uh, encourage and challenge them to holiness, Lord, to pray for them. Um, but that we would also go uh, to the to the end of the earth with the gospel as well. Lord, we pray that you would help us to shape our identity of who we are. And Lord, that it help us understand that we are very much a political community, that we are very much political actors, um, but yet we worship the true God, the true King, the true Lord. And pray that, Lord, that we would, would show people uh, who the true King and true Lord is and that they would come to believe and trust Him. Lord, we love you. We praise you. 
And as our sister Heidi said, Lord, may we not uh, be okay with outsourcing, caring for the widows and orphans, Lord, that we would take on that responsibility that you have given us as well and point people to the great Father and the great Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Lesson 7, Politics of the Kingdom in the Church and Politics class. If you're interested in more information about Central Church, you can check us out at centralchurch.com and learn more about our ministries and our classes. And we hope to see you back.